Welcome to Today on Broadway for Friday, July 29th, 2022. I'm Broadway Radio's Matt Tamanini. And I'm arts and culture writer Ashley Steves. Ashley, on Friday, today, I am flying from St. Louis to New York Woo-hoo! City to see Grace Aki's uh, To Free a Mockingbird at the She NYC. Fe- I was trying to see, I almost started to go with the She NYC Festival first, but that's not actually ah. Grace's. Yeah. Grace is in it, but she doesn't own it. But anyway, um, I'm going to be oh, seeing that show it. first. She does, but not in like the actual legal sense, yeah. in like the, <laughs> yeah, in, in the colloquial way of but saying yeah. that she owns something. Yeah. Um, so I will be there. Tonight, assuming all goes well, we had another flash flood warning here in St. Louis on oh, Thursday God. afternoon. Um, so assuming I get out, I will be there. Uh, so hopefully if anybody is looking for something to do on Friday, they will join me. Maybe Ashley, if, hey, if, your, if your spine Whole allows you. body, yeah. Not yeah. even my spine, just my yeah. entire body at this point. Okay. Well, if your body allows you, uh, you will be there with me to greet anybody who wants to say hi to the redhead and the bald guy uh, in the, the audience. That's the that name, is, That yeah. is our I s- would spinoff show. S- I would say we should rename it The Bald and the Beautiful, but that's already a podcast, so we can't do that. Yeah, that's probably is. Yeah, that's a good point. It is. Um, anyway, we will have a link in the show notes if you want to get tickets to see Grace's To Free a Mockingbird on Friday night at the Connolly Theater. Um, of course, you can hear all of our episodes also at patreon.com slash broadwayradio, broadwayradio.com slash patreon. Uh, I think the thing that so many people want to hear based off how many people were so happy for me to be at the Muni <laughs> last night is all of my thoughts on Legally Blonde. Yeah. We'll get to that. Let's get into the news first. There's not a ton of news, so it'll just be a few little stories and then my thoughts on Legally Blonde. But let's start with something that I don't think that I knew was happening, but I feel like if I had, I would have put it into my schedule and I'm going to be checking the times to see if I can make it happen. Because, Ashley, did you know that there is going to be an ASL performance of Sweeney Todd at Lincoln Center this weekend? I don't think I did either. I didn't either. So this is um, part of Lincoln Center's Summer of, uh, summer for the City program, which I think Grace actually performed in, or she did something with Lincoln yeah. Center. So this will be done at Dam Roche Park on uh, Sunday, July 31st. And the cast has been announced, and it will feature James Caverly, who recently starred as Harold Hill in the Only Theater Center's production of The Music Man, which we talked about on a previous episode. Um, he will star as Tobias Rag and Beetle Bamford, and he will be alongside Fred Beam playing uh, Sweeney Todd. Anne Tomasetti as Mrs. Levitt, uh, Heba Tulin as Joanna, Monique Holt as Adolfo Pirelli and the Beggar Woman, Hector Reynoso as Judge Turpin, and uh, Christopher Tester as Anthony. Uh, I, I'm interested because they don't say a whole lot about how this works. Um, will it be strictly ASL performance? Will there be an orchestra and them doing the ASL to the music? I, I'm very fascinated by this, and I, I've got a full plate on Saturday already. But are on Sunday already. But if I can squeeze this in, I will definitely head up to Lincoln Center to see if I can figure out what this is all about. Yeah, I don't you have fat ham that night though. Isn't that I do. same night? Okay, I, do. I, yes. I feel like it won't line up. But regardless, yeah. I know they did um, an Into the Woods a few years ago, maybe or last year. I don't even remember. So it might be the same situation um, where it was like a filmed version of Into the Woods, and then deaf actors performed it on stage. Hmm. So that might be the same case that they're doing here. They did that at Lincoln Center. I think so. Okay. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty certain of that. Um, but if that's the case, and yeah, I mean, I'll, 
hard, hard for me to miss out on a performance of Sweeney, especially when it's right here in the city. So that might end up happening for me. Absolutely. All right. So uh, sticking with things not on Broadway, yesterday, a transfer from off-off-Broadway to off-Broadway was announced for the New York Times critics pick This Beautiful Future. This is a show written by Rita Kalnehas and directed by Jack Sirio that had played a limited I think it was a virtual run, actually. Mm. Um, and then it is coming to a six-week run at the Cherry Lane Theater starting on September 10th and running through October 30th with an opening night scheduled for September 20th. So the cast the cast includes three members of the original company returning and one new member. The three returning are Francesca Capranini, uh, Tony winner Angelina Fiordelisi, and Tony nominee Austin Pendleton. And they are joined by Uli Schlesinger um, in his New York stage debut. So caught in the middle of a war, two teenagers take shelter from a divided world. Uh, Elodie is French and 17. Otto, a German soldier, is 16. Safe from, from the debris outside, they secretly meet for one night. They talk, tease, and touch. They fall in love and fall through time. Uh, this show originally had a 2017 world premiere uh, in London. And then, as I said, ha- I think had a, a virtual run here uh, with most of this cast during the pandemic. So it'll be very mm-hmm. interesting to see this one. Uh, full disclosure, um, this is being presented by O. Henry Productions, uh, my friend Oliver Roth. Ah. So um, I want to get that out there. But uh, sounds fascinating. And anything Austin Definitely. Pendleton deems worthy to oh my God, absolutely. Um, be involved with has to be something that's really Absolutely good. true. All right, so uh, let's finish up our last little bit of news here. And unfortunately, it's some sad news because the San Francisco production of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child announced yesterday that it will close this coming September. At the time of its closing, it will have played 393 performances, making it the longest running play in the city's history. Mm-hmm. Um I, you know, I, I have to wonder what would have happened with a lot of these sit-downs, both of, of Harry Potter and Hamilton, Without mm. the pandemic, would they still be oh, running yeah. like full force? Um, you know, obviously they would have had a whole year and a half of performances and in some cases more, especially the ones in California. Yeah. Um, under their belt. So it would have felt a little bit more substantive, but I wonder if they would have just continued to gain momentum. And I, I feel like there's a lot of shows like that, both in New York and around the country. Totally. That lost momentum because of the pandemic. Again, no fault of their own, but we're going so hot that they just can't pick back up steam. And I feel, uh, bad for this cast. I feel bad for um, for everybody uh, involved, but um, yeah. you know it, it is what it is, and I, I don't know what else you can do at this point. Yeah, and also like shows that you expected to get off the ground too and be really successful, and then just either couldn't be presented or yeah. died out pretty quickly. It's unfortunate for sure. There's a part of me that wonders. I mean, Hamilton is a different story, and I wonder if like maybe the pro tape kind of had a part in that as well but for this i mean it's san francisco and it's harry potter i kind of like have a little bit in me of like the jk rolling of it all i don't know if that was Uh, any kind of a contributing factor though it should be but yeah it's it's unfortunate to see it's unfortunate for the actor as always at some point i wouldn't mind having a conversation of 
how, when, and how severely do you separate the art from the artist? Oh, uh, God, no one will ever agree with that ever. And I, I well, have I don't know. incredibly I don't have mixed, yeah, I have me incredibly too. mixed feelings about that. And I was hoping some you would tell which, me how to feel. <laughs> I can't do that. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I have very contradictory feelings across the board for that. And yeah. I don't, I, I think most people do and it's complicated uh, it is very complicated and uh, people like to cherry pick it too uh to meet their own heroes for that matter yeah all right speaking of heroes it is now time for me to talk about (laughs) legally blonde uh ashley before i get into my thoughts on the show itself i i do need to talk about a few other things that are like around the periphery of the show okay so before the show last night and after the entire eleven thousand people crowd stood for the national anthem because that's what the muni does before yes, every performance. You do. yeah the muni's longtime artistic director uh uh mark isaacson mike isaacson i believe is his name um he came out on stage and talked directly to the audience um obviously this is my only my second time seeing a show there he did not mm-hmm. do it before sweeney todd and i don't get the feeling that he does it often mike isaacson is his name um but he understandably wanted to talk about the flooding that had happened on Tuesday and what it had taken to get the show back up and running on Wednesday. He said that more or less since like 7 a.m. on Tuesday morning, the Muni's entire staff and crew had been working practically with no sleep to get things working again, to make sure that everything was safe for both the cast, crew, and staff and the audience. And then this was, this is what got me. He asked everybody who worked at the Muni to come on stage and dozens upon dozens of people Aww. all dressed in black, like they do, all dressed in black, yeah. dutifully but fairly reluctantly came out in front of the assembled theater goers <laughs> yeah. and received a generous and heartfelt and well-deserved oh, standing ovation it. that just went on and on. And it was uh, very emotional. Um, and it was lovely. It was uh, clearly emotional for everybody on stage, clearly emotional for Isaacson and for many of us in the audience, myself included. Mm -hmm. Um, From there, uh, Isaacson said that while their giant LED screens on stage and the massive turntable were operational, there were parts of the set, including two lifts at the front of the stage that I saw used quite elegantly in Sweeney Todd, uh, had not been restored and they were not working. Mm -hmm. So, on Wednesday... The cast and creative team reassembled and reblocked roughly one third of the show in a six hour period to be able oh to do God. the show that night. And even now, Ashley, I'm, I'm kind of like welling up thinking about this selfless dedication to the craft and to the audience and to each other that so embodies what we think of the true spirit of theater people is. And so often these days, at least for me, when I hear the show must go on, to me, it now kind of stirs negative connotations Mm -hmm. because I think, you know, to me, that thinks of a worker going on while they are sick or injured or worn down, either physically or mentally, and anything else that should allow them to take a day off. Either that or- We had so much of that with the understudies of like, no, actually everyone should not be on stage right now. Yeah. 100%. And that or it makes me think of people being forced to work in conditions that are not safe or are abusive, um, but they are guilted into working anyway because, Mm -hmm. you know, the show's the thing and they're so, uh, you know, they're so lucky to be able to do this. Um, and, And we hold, you know, the show must go on and the show's the thing to this like beatific ideal that isn't real and, and shouldn't be how we do things. But here, 
This just struck me as a beautiful, selfless gesture from a group who just wanted to do the work after a terrifying and confusing 36 hours mm-hmm. or so, um, so that an appreciative audience could escape for a couple hours. And uh, I can't tell you how much I appreciated that kindness and that Very effort much. and that generosity of spirit uh, and body, uh, because that's tough to rehearse a show for six hours, to reblock it, to rememorize oh it, God, and then go I and do it. Imagine, yeah, it's insane. So in this essay, <laughs> now that I've gotten that out of the way, yeah. I, I, I don't think that this will come as a surprise to anyone listening. But uh. just in case there are some new folks coming along on this journey today, I love Legally Blonde, the musical. Uh, it is easily one of my top five favorite shows of all time and Correct. probably top three. So I realize that I am not coming to this production without a hefty amount of personal biases. However, I mm-hmm. feel pretty confident that my take on this production is as objective as I can possibly be. I am not great at many things. Perhaps I am not great at any things. But one thing that I do think I am pretty good at is being able to separate the emotional side of my brain from the analytical side. And True. maybe it's because I... I can confirm my, this. Yeah, my... My emotions generally stay in the middle. Four to seven is how I always, you know, define it. And a lot of people in the theater. Yeah. I'm just always kind of like, yeah, in the middle. Everybody, like a lot of people in theater are either one to three or eight to 10 all the time. And I kind of stay away. Yes. You are the extremes. I'm in the middle. Yeah. So I feel like so well together. Exactly. So take that for what it's worth, but I do not feel that my opinions on this production are dramatically colored by my long, deep and unabiding effect for this show. (laughs) So finally getting into the thing. I am not somebody who is naturally drawn to gritty reboots. When Zack Snyder did the Man of Steel movie and tried to make Superman, who has always stood for warmth and kindness and fun and and generosity, um, into something that was very much dark and and brooding, that did not work for me. Um, But that's very different than with what Christopher Nolan did with the Dark Knight trilogy, because dark and gritty are part of Batman's DNA. Mm. So while I don't love those movies, I appreciate them because they are true to the core of the story that they are telling. It's kind of similar to how I felt about Sexy Oklahoma. Daniel Fish was not taking a bright and sunshiny musical and adding in some foreign element of gloom and doom just for gloom and doom's sake. Instead, he was stripping away the somewhat artificial sunshine to reveal both the textual humor and darkness of the actual script. Because even in that production, Oklahoma was still very funny. Uh Uh, And and I loved everything about Fish's take until the final 10 or 15 minutes when I think that he completely abandoned the author's actual intention and inserted his own. But until that point, yeah, until that point, I thought it was great because that's what the text actually said. It's a matter of not altering the DNA of the text. And that's the thing here. Yeah. And that's what gets me to the Muni's Legally Blonde. Because the performance (laughs) that I saw on Wednesday was like no other Legally Blonde that I'd ever seen. And in many ways is unlike any Legally Blonde that I hope to ever see again. When I spoke to Kyla Stone, who is luminous and lovely as Elle Woods on this past weekend's episode of This Week in Theater, I, I noted to her that she kept talking about how grounded and real this production felt. And I said something to the fact of, with all the pink and glitter and extremity and silliness of Legally Blonde, it's unusual to hear you talk about how grounded this show is. And to me at the time, what I thought she meant was how connected the cast was to their characters and to each other. 
But now having seen the show, what I realize is what she was actually saying was giving me a glimpse inside the rehearsal room because it is very clear that director Maggie Burroughs wanted to do something very different with this Legally Blonde, though at times it still had all of the trappings of a traditional Legally Blonde with the pops of pink throughout the set and lots of well-choreographed dance numbers. What truly makes Legally Blonde Legally Blonde was not present. I I first noticed it very early on uh, when I realized that the tempos for many of the songs were noticeably slower than Mm. I have ever heard Mm -hmm. them before on either stage or cast album. Now, I know that traditionally cast albums are sped up. They go faster because it's a one sensual medium where on stage it's a little slower because one, people are dancing and stuff. So it has to be a little slower, but there's also other things to distract you. So they don't want to go too fast. So cast albums in many cases are faster than the tempos written in the score. That was not what I was seeing because I've seen plenty Many. of productions yeah. of Legally Blonde to know. <laughs> and and while I thought at first that, oh, this is weird, uh, uh, you know, after the full opening number, the epic Oh My God, You Guys, which is not a short song, I started to realize <sighs> that what was likely being done was slowing things down to give the cast additional opportunities to connect with the t- material from an acting standpoint. But instead, what was actually happening was it was robbing every song and performer of the heart of the humor, of the energy that makes Legally Blonde this giddily infectious show that we have known and loved for the past nearly decade and a half. And what unfortunately happens when you slow down a show like Legally Blonde is that you start to see the absurdities of the story Mm -hmm. that you just don't care about when you are having this rollickingly fun ride that the show is supposed to be and is constructed to be. Mm -hmm. Legally Blonde, both the movie and the musical are essentially modern fairy tales. They are yep. exaggerated stories that communicate communicate meaningful and powerful messages of sisterhood, of of misogyny, of female empowerment, and all of those things. And they do that because they Trojan horse them through silliness, sentimentality, and laughs. But when you purposely strip away all of the silliness, sentimentality, and laughs, you're left with the bones of a story that doesn't hold up strongly enough to support the meaning and power of those messages. And that's because when you want Legally Blonde to be a real-world grounded story, you then have to rationalize the fact that a young woman and dozens of friends fly across the country, apparently commercial on JetBlue, and barge into a meeting in which just three men by themselves are determining who get into law school. And after doing a fashion show, which is one of the changes in this production from the original marching band thing, Elle gets into Harvard specifically because she tells an administrator that she's in love. That doesn't make sense in a real world story. Mm-mm. Or how a murder case takes a field trip to a bathroom of a murder scene so that one of the lawyers can do a show and tell about the chemical reactions of a perm. Those things not only work, but are kind of elegantly delightful when the production leans into that aforementioned silliness, sentimentality, and laughs. But they feel weird and out of place when the production opts for a more grounded approach. Time and time again, the production didn't really just rush past jokes because they didn't do anything quickly. Um, but when it came to the jokes and the bits that are in the script, they just kind of slowly sauntered past them, not even acknowledging their existence. And that was not only confusing, but frustrating because there is zero reason that an audience of 11,000 people should not have more than two, maybe three, if I'm being generous, collective laughs 
during an evening Still of Legally Blonde. Still got by that. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Absolutely. So Matt texted me last night. It was 1 a.m. my time. And I let out the loudest gasp slash yell at that fact. It's that unbelievable. is ridiculous. Unbelievable. And, and there was also, in my opinion, an extreme overcorrection in terms of changing dialogues and lyrics in what seemed to be an effort to not offend anyone. And I don't know how many of those changes are from the current version of the script that is being produced or how many mm. of them were done specifically for this production. Um, but some of them felt really bizarre. Like, I think in any production, having a Harvard administrator referring to the dancing that happens in what you want as ethnic movement is problematic, but sure. especially so when Elle is being played by a black woman. So I get that mm -hmm. one. Yeah. No problems there. But a number of the changes in there right there, which Kyla alluded to in our conversation over the weekend, the gayer European song, they felt reactive and defensive and honestly a bit reductive without actually understanding what was inherently problematic about the song. Because there are things that are problematic about the song, but I don't think they actually did anything to make that work. For example, if you know the number, they changed who sings the line, well, hey, don't look at me, uh, from Warner to Brooke, which to my admittedly mm. straight male mind felt unnecessary, but more importantly, made it completely nonsensical. It, it, it was like, they're like, we're going to not make this offensive because somebody might find it offensive. And instead, we're just going to make it not make sense. And hopefully people will, will move past it. It's and that like, sorry, it's like the, no, yeah. the opposite of what Book of Mormon did, where they said they were going to make all these changes and then made like did two nothing. things. Yeah. It kept like it kept everything else the same because they didn't want to change this musical that's been running forever where the show yeah. told nobody, changed everything, and lost all of the meaning. Yeah, and, and and it happened just far too often. There's too many things for you made it even remember. Um but it, what's sad about it is that this is a show, in my opinion, that is a sterling example of a modern musical comedy, and it undermines the brilliant construction of the show. And if you don't trust the material of Legally Blonde, don't do Legally Blonde. Uh, and it's truly a yes. shame because, Ashley, on yesterday's show, I noted that I was a little weary about the vocals yeah, and the highlights that the yeah. movie put out. But I got to tell you, in the performances I actually saw in person, I had none of those concerns. Wow, 95% okay. of the time, I thought that the voices worked really well and uh, with the score and they perfectly fit into that pocket that I was talking about. So the concerns that I went in with weren't the concerns that I left with. I thought yeah. the vocals worked really well. Everybody in the cast, incredibly talented. Kyla was clearly charismatic and it's easy to see why she has had so much success in her very, very young career. And Fergie Philippe as Emmett was wonderful and magnetic and the only person in the cast. Um, that's not true. One of two people in the cast um, that I thought could work in a normal production of Legally Blonde, but he's also the only one that seemed to have comedic moments that he added in that are not inherently into the script. And it was small things, um, you know, gestures or ways that he approached things. Um, I don't know that he necessarily fit vocally perfectly, but Fergie stood out as somebody who like, if you put him in a traditional production of Legally Blonde, 
he would work and it would be an interesting take. And you know hmm. how much I adore Patty Muren, both as a human yes. and as a comedic singing actress. But how do you have somebody as freaking talented as, 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 as she is and as funny as she is play Paulette and not have her do a voice? She doesn't have to do a Jennifer Coolidge impression yeah. or even try to recreate what Orfe does. But yeah. Paulette is an inherently absurd character. And I say that lovingly because I love the character of Paulette. But when you purposely take away oh, that perfect. absurdity, you're left with a very bland character that honestly doesn't serve much of a purpose in the show. But they stripped uh, I, away the absurdity of the entire show. So that's exactly. what he was surprising that they stripped away that's the absurdity of her. That's why you don't do her. the voice. Yeah. Yes, that's why she doesn't do a voice because it, they wanted it to be natural. Um, I will note also, though, that Jagged Little Pill Tony nominee Sean Allen Krill was probably the best Professor Callahan I've ever seen in person, Ooh. primarily because that character isn't normally fun. True. So they didn't have anything to strip away. Um, so <laughs> yeah, him and fair. Fergie... <laughs> Him and Fergie felt like people or like performances that could be transported into any other production around the world. So in closing this diatribe, I <laughs> was disappointed because this production, yes, uh, in this column, Dr. I will. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I went to see this show with my aunt. Dr. Molly nice. Schaller, PhD, who is the associate dean of the St. Louis University School Ooh. of Education. Um, so I did tell her this, this would now be my dissertation. <laughs> so, uh, there you go. Anyway, um, this production had all of the agree ingredients to not only be special, but to be revelatory. I still teared up many, many times during the show because it was it was very moving to see a black central couple telling this story about two people, both Emmett and Elle, who are themselves outsiders in this mm. very white uh, enclave of a community. Yeah. And that was powerful. That worked. Um, the talent works. And, you know, also talk about Haley Padshoon as, 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 as Brooke Wyndham and so many other people. Like everything there was great. Unfortunately, I think that the person putting the recipe together didn't actually understand what makes the dish one that people want to eat. If I'm going to continue the food metaphor, perhaps yeah. a step too no, far. Um, I, I'm but on as board. I, say, I know you always are. Yeah. But I said it earlier. If you don't want to do a show that is fun, that is filled with jokes and sunshine, that is built on a bedrock of heart and humor, don't do Legally Blonde. And I feel like mm. in many, many ways, this production did not actually do Legally Blonde. They did Legally Blonde the script and the score, but they did not do Legally Blonde the feeling or the heart. It's like they wanted to do a legal drama for everything. It, yeah, it was very strange. <laughs> I do 12 Angry strange. Men. Yeah, with songs. Let's do a musical with adaptation songs. of 12 Angry Men. Yeah. Oof, yuck. Bland. So... Yeah, legally bland. Legally as you said bland. To me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Oof. anyway, not the review that I wanted to give. No, but, it's so disappointing. I'm so sorry for you. But but I think it's the review. I mean, I think it's an honest review, it and is. I think that's honestly what. And I don't think I'm overcorrecting either. I, I think like no. that's. I think that's. Uh, I think it's fair. Very I hope fair. that other people enjoyed it more than I do, though, uh, because I want everyone to enjoy everything they see, but especially legally blonde. So there will always anyway. be Sweeney. There will. Sweeney was great. And uh, I will definitely still see every production of Legally Blonde I possibly can. So yeah. whatever. Um, watch but the I will taste be on away. My, yeah, absolutely. I will be turning on YouTube to watch the MTV Pro Tape. Uh, someone please release the <laughs> HD version that I know is out there somewhere. 
Anyway, I will be heading to New York City to see more theater this week, so you'll hear all about oh, that yeah. on future episodes. But that is all that we have for you today. Thanks for listening to Today on Broadway. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Broadway Radio. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWW Matt. Ashley, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at No, This is Ashley. All right. You can find both of us, hopefully, at the Connolly Theater on Friday night at 8.30 p.m. to see Grace Aki's To Free a Mockingbird. Join us, please. We will have links in the show notes to how you can get those tickets. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll be back to talk to you on Monday. 